Um, so, like the last couple of weeks, we are going to start with some questions, some interaction. All right, let's go to the first question. Thanks, Joel. How much of the Bible have you read? Yeah, I'd actually be pretty... There we go. I'd be pleased if we had someone here who'd actually read none of it. Because um, you've got to start somewhere, right? Everyone starts at zero. And uh, hopefully this will be an encouragement to get right into it. A lot of people have taken it upon themselves to get into the whole word uh, and go all the way through it. And um, but it's pretty evenly spread besides that. Awesome. All right. And next question. Now, okay, so I'm going to give some context for this question. Um, are you more of a Psalms or a Romans Christian? This is a question I heard years ago. Oh, people already know how to answer this. This is a question I heard years ago, um, sort of identifying how people engage with the word and um, what people love most about it. And so the Psalms Christian is sort of more heart and relationship. It's more like me and God getting to know each other. And the Romans Christian is probably more um, head theology, like, oh, I love learning more about predestination and... Uh, <laughs> and not a Christian we do hope we have non-Christians here um, each week so I'm glad you're here, welcome if you want to talk about anything afterwards that'd be great, if you want to come back next week that'd be great um, I'm going to assume some Bible knowledge here just by necessity for the scope of the sermon today but um, yeah I'm, it's quite an even split between the Psalms Christians and the Romans Christians when I was asked this question years ago, I said, I'm an Ecclesiastes Christian because I was being difficult. But, I would <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I would say I'm actually uh, a Romans Christian. Moreover, I don't... the point isn't to strongly identify with one or the other and neglect the other, you know. All right, let's have the next question. All right, so this is more open-ended. What are some of the names and titles of Jesus? We call them all sorts of things. You might, not, you might know them from the Bible. You might know them from worship songs. Messiah, Big Daddy. <laughs> like we're seeing a lot of Messiah, Saviour, Son of Man. Very good. There are more than four, I can tell you that. Okay, here we go. Prince of Peace. I'm going to turn around and see behind me so I can see it better. Love my soul. Redeemer, King, Light of the World, Lamb, Judge, um, Suffering Servant, Shepherd, The Great I Am, Counselor, Rabbi, Jehovah. Tricky like that, Jesus. <laughs> uh, healer, Yahweh, Judge, Dubly. I don't get that one, I've got to say. Um, it's a lot, isn't it? I am. Bread of life, friend, healer. And all these, all these names come from somewhere, don't they? I think sometimes we kind of like pick them up and we know to use them and don't necessarily know where they come from and why Jesus has so many names. Why can't he just use one? Wouldn't that be a bit easier? Um, so we'll get, we'll get to that. Okay, I think we have one more question. Um, What's the best way to get into Harry Potter? Is it by the books or the movies? <laughs> okay. 
People leaning more towards the books than the movies. Maybe, maybe Harry Potter was a bit of a controversial pick. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> um, all right. I, look, I think the books are winning. I can understand that. Look, I, years ago, I thought I should finally get into this Harry Potter business. It wasn't that many years ago that Harry Potter was new, um, but I should just see what all the fuss was about. And so uh, I'd seen a movie or two here and there. I'd heard the books were good. Um, and people would recommend me more towards the books and the movies. But I figured I had time for neither. So um, I googled Harry Potter wiki. I found myself on harrypotter.fandom.com. Uh, it's a fan-made website. Imagine Wikipedia, but just in the Harry Potter fiction. Uh, so instead of experiencing the story from beginning to end as the author intended, um, I just kind of like clicked on whatever interested me and dug into that. You know, um, invisibility cloak, that sounds cool. Click. Deathly Hallows, ooh, spooky. Click on that. Um, Elder Wand, Dumbledore, what a weird name. Click on that. And uh, before long, I felt like I had a pretty good knowledge of what was going on in this fictional universe. Um, some interesting stuff there. But I actually had no idea what the overall story was. And I had no idea what kind of like the big picture was. I wonder if you, um, anyone can identify with that experience, not with Harry Potter specifically, but perhaps with something else, of kind of knowing a whole bunch of uh, smaller sub-stories or elements of a big picture story and um, not having only a vague, fuzzy idea about how, how it all fits together. Because for me, it's not just like that with Harry Potter. For a long time, it was like that with the Bible. Um, growing up, I think I was very well-churched and not very well-read. And so I would spend... Um, a Sunday or a Bible study deep into a section of the Bible, a story. Um, Sunday school sets you up pretty well as well with like, you know, slaves in Egypt, um, parting of the Red Sea, Jesus walking on water, David and Goliath, some really cool stuff like that. But um, my idea of how it was all connected was actually pretty poor. If you had asked me where or when in the Bible any of these events had happened, I could only tell you with confidence which ones happened in the Old Testament that's the stuff before Jesus, right? And which stuff happened in the New Testament? Probably. And that's about it. My big picture, if we can have the first slide of the Bible, looked like this. I also knew that the Old Testament was bigger than the New Testament. So um, there's the cross, represents Jesus. And um, yeah, plonk me anywhere else but the Gospels. And I was kind of a little bit lost, especially in the Old Testament, where it just seemed like, uh, this really dense history, um, these kind of repeating patterns, and there's nothing wrong with repeating patterns, but patterns that, as far as I could tell, repeated so much that it was impossible for me to discern one from the other or where they kind of fit. Oh, the people of Israel are being oppressed. Um, that's, that seems to be having a million times in the Old Testament. And so I just kind of be lost. And um, so what I want to do is form a better big picture. I want to sort of equip us with a map where we have these landmarks we can see, where we can kind of drop in anywhere in the Bible. Um, I don't mean just like plucking out a random verse. I mean like, you know, read, read a book anywhere in the Bible and kind of know where it fits in the big picture, what its purpose is, why it's important, and kind of um, not be so daunted by the prospects of navigating what is all around it. So uh, I think we can do much better than that big picture. Um, we're going to fill in some landmarks 
to go and populate it in a bit. But first, if you were to kind of fill in that big picture, what are some landmark events to look out for? What are the kind of um, things that you would pivot your history around, things that you would use to place yourself? The question will make more sense as someone throws out an example. Creation, there we go. Abraham. Abraham, yeah, good one. Moses, yeah. What was that? I think I said Revelation. Revelation, very good. Exile. Exile. King David. Israel dividing in two. Israel dividing in two. Wow. A talking donkey. A talking donkey. <laughs> That's a good one. Honestly, you want to know, are you before talking donkey or after talking donkey? So, <laughs> awesome. I think, so, there are some really big ones, and I think um, there's a lot of, like, nodding when some of these come up. We're like, oh, yeah, that's kind of, that has to be in there. We have to know where we are in relation to that. And there are other ones that may be a bit more obscure or surprising. I think everyone's big picture is going to look a little bit different. But um, one of the ways that we can kind of fill in this big picture is uh, by learning a song. I'm not going to teach you a song, but there's this song called The Story of Scripture. It's kind of aimed at kids, um, and it's fantastic. It's just 40 events, 40 icons. It's not pictures, but... 40 events that you could put on that timeline that span all of scripture from beginning to end that you can sort of orientate yourself uh, within the timeline with those. Those 40 events they give are creation, fall, promise, flood, Tower of Babel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, slaves in Egypt, Moses, Red Sea, wilderness, Jordan River, Joshua, conquest of the promised land, judges, Samuel the prophet, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, kingdoms split, prophets speak, Israel conquered by Assyria, Judah conquered by Babylon, exiles return, temple rebuilt, 400 years of silence, we're getting there, Jesus is born, lives a perfect life, disciples follow Jesus, dies on a cross, buried in a tomb, Jesus is resurrected, ascends to heaven, Holy Spirit comes, gospel shared to all the earth, church waits, Jesus returns, and number 40, kingdom of God forever. <coughs> Good, hey? I mean, it feels pretty comprehensive. Now say it back to me. So yeah, it, look, it's a lot to memorize. It's, it's a bit hard. Um, it's more homework if you want to take it on. It's Google it, YouTube it, Spotify it. It's called The Story of Scripture. Uh, my, if my three-year-old can learn it and correct me on it when I try and sing it, then I'm sure we can all learn it. Um, but in lieu of a 40-step process, a 40-item list um, <clears throat> for knowing all of Scripture, uh, I'll give you my big picture. Um, let's go to the next slide. There we go. The garden, counting stars, Egypt, the crown, the split, the exiles, restoration, the cross, the whole world, and the eternal kingdom. There's 10 events in the Bible, so it doesn't cover everything, but it does span from the beginning to the end. And for me, it helps me figure out where I am. I think these are kind of landmark um, landscape changing events where just by re even in the verse you are in you can tell by the way it's talking about it whether which of these items you are between or in um, and i think all of these came up when um i asked for you guys to call it out i think everything's there maybe except the talking donkey um, so it seems like we're a lot of us are on the same page but i do want to go through these 
what they are, um, kind of help us situate ourselves throughout the whole, especially the Old Testament, which can be really daunting. Um, and, and look at how it sort of uh, tells the big picture of uh, God's story. Um, so first we have the Garden of Eden. Um, this is where Adam and Eve walked with God, living the dream, pretty sweet. But the serpent deceived Eve. She and Adam disobeyed God and they were banished. They could not be with God. They could not enjoy eternal life because of their sin. Uh, to the serpent, God promises enmity between him and a descendant of Eve. Between the serpent and a descendant of Eve. So we'll keep an eye out for that one. And that little, that little cross with the um, arrows going out of it, that's been getting kicked out. <laughs> I think like, some, of the, some of these pictures are doing a lot of heavy lifting, right? Um, <laughs> so the, the, the garden represents like creation, it represents us being in the presence of God in bliss as God had intended, and it represents us getting banished as well with that little bonus symbol. Um, next we have Abraham ca counting stars. Can you see Abraham there? This was the hardest one for me to draw. Um, I started with just like a head with a beard, and Trippie was like, What's that? And I was like, all right. <laughs> How would you do Abraham? And she said, someone counting stars. So here's um, Abraham counting stars. Uh, this is when God told Abraham, there was Abram at the time, um, count the stars. As countless as the stars, so your children will be. God made this, uh, we call this the Abrahamic covenant. God told Abraham he'd bless him, make him a great nation, his children as uncountable as the stars, and he'll bless all peoples through him. And this is what we call a unilateral covenant. It's, um, it's unconditional. So Abraham doesn't actually have to do anything to keep up his side of the deal. God said, this is something that I'm going to do for you. Abraham says, sweet. Um, to paraphrase, I guess. But it is pretty sweet, isn't it? Um, isn't that wonderful? Then uh, we have Egypt. And Egypt is doing a lot of heavy lifting. Uh, we have the arrow going in because we have the story of Abraham's descendants, Jacob and his kids, going into uh, Egypt, and we have the arrow going out because we have the exodus from Egypt. Um, going into Egypt, this is the end of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And um, so I've gotten a little bit lost. Uh, okay, so uh, Jacob has 12 sons, one of whom is Joseph. His brothers are a bit jealous of him, sell him into slavery. He goes into Egypt, rises up in power. There's so much stuff here, right? You have jo uh, Joseph in Technicolor Dreamcoat. You have um, anyway, a, a lot of pop culture references and Bible stories happen in this space. Uh, but in the end, uh, Joseph, now in power in Egypt, brings his family in, brings them out of famine, here, you're safe with me, it's all good, um, let's stay here for a while. And as they're in Egypt, as they're getting to the end of Jacob's life, Jacob's name is also, Jacob's other name is Israel, he prophesies over each of his sons, his 12 sons, ultimately representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And I'm not going to go through all those prophecies, but one stands out to me is his prophecy over his son Judah, where he compares him to a lion, saying his brothers will praise him and bow down to him his scepter will not depart. If you've heard the, the phrase, the Lion of Judah, this is where that comes from. It's this prophecy. 
But so now we've wrapped up Genesis. Uh, here's the exit of Egypt, the exodus. God calls Moses to lead the people out of Egypt where they're being oppressed, where, where they are enslaved. Um, another famous Bible story, the ten plagues. Pharaoh doesn't want to let God's people go, so the plagues kind of get worse and worse and worse, kind of twist his arm, and culminating in the plague, it's called the plague of death. And it's quite horrible. Um, the eldest son in every household will die on this night. Unless you're one of Israel's people, one of the children of Israel, and you follow these instructions. You've killed a lamb, and you've spread its blood over your door to signify um, that the price in blood has been paid. And so those households were the only ones that didn't lose their eldest son. This was quite a horrible night for the Egyptians, and this was the last straw for Pharaoh, and he let Israel go. Um, this is a really powerful moment. Uh, this Passover, passing over, the Passover has been celebrated pretty much every year uh, ever since then. And the exodus from Egypt, God bringing his people out of Egypt, is mentioned in almost every book of the Old Testament and a few in the New. It's like this huge event in Israel's history where God really kind of lays a special claim over the nation of Israel rather than just uh, the person of Abraham. Now he's claim, laying claim over the nation of Israel. Here's what I've done for you and I'll continue to do for you. Um, just follow me and obey me. And so this is what we call the Mosaic Covenant. This is the covenant made under Moses. And it, unlike the Abrahamic uh, covenant, it is a conditional one. Um, if you kind of break the rules, I'm not going to help you. But if you come back to me, I'll continue to help you again. All right. We spent a lot of time there. Um, but these are really big events, aren't they? So we're going to skip ahead a little bit. There's a bunch that happens between uh, the Exodus and, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of led out um, and into the Promised Land. Moses, sorry, Moses dies. Joshua is raised up. They go into the Promised Land. We have Joshua, Judges, and Ruth kind of happen um, out of Egypt. But before we reach the crown here, the crown here represents the beginning of the monarchy. Um, Israel wants a king. They kind of have this guy Samuel. They don't want, they're not asking him to be king, but he's a priest, he's a prophet, he is a um, kind of the spokesperson of God to Israel. And they're like, oh, sweet, Samuel, can you get us a king? And Samuel's like, uh, God's your king. And they're like, oh, yeah, but we want a human king. And so God appoints King Saul to be the first king of Israel. And things start off all right there, and then Saul kind of turns away, and so God raises up David to replace him. And King David is kind of like the ultimate king um, in Israel's history. You know, he's uh, a man after God's own heart. He um, worships God in song. He follows him imperfectly, but this is kind of the peak of Israel's history here um, under King David. And unlike Saul, King David is um, of the tribe of Judah. So this is kind of where we first see Jacob's prophecy over his son Judah fulfilled, um, that you will rule over your brothers and the scepter will not depart from your hand. 
And so David has his son Solomon, and Solomon becomes king after David. And this is kind of, we're still under this big one crown here. This is a golden age for Israel. Um, So this current period is in, pardon me, um, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. Sorry, more 1 Kings, actually. Um, But you'll also see David and Solomon referenced elsewhere a whole bunch. Like if you're in Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, a bunch of wisdom books that were probably written in this golden age. In history, when a nation is at its most prosperous is usually also when it produces its most uh, significant um, art and literature. That's right. And so we see that here as well with the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, a lot of the wisdom and poetic writings of the Old Testament um, attributing themselves to these kings, likely being written in this period um, as well. So um, then it's all downhill from here. But so if you're situating yourself in the word, um, if Israel doesn't have a king yet, you're kind of before that king, that, that crown. Uh, if they have a King Saul or a King David or a King Solomon, you're kind of in this period here. And then we get into this really dense history. We reach uh, in the middle of one king's, um, the kingdom's split. Solomon's son is not accepted as king by everyone. Um, He's kind of a bit of a meanie, a bit rude, and uh, demands more from people than they would like to have demanded of them. Um, Oh, sorry, I missed something important here. Under David, not only do we see him fulfilling Judah's prophecy over him, that, uh, sorry, Jacob's prophecy over Judah, that uh, Judah will be king, Um, but also the prophet Nathan prophesies over Daniel as well, uh, David as well, and we see a new covenant, the Davidic covenant. And this prophecy is that the throne of David's offspring and his kingdom will be established forever. And so this really solidifies the idea that not only will Judah rule, but Judah will be, the line of Judah will be, um, will always rule, will be the eternal ruler for the kingdom of Israel. Um, And what a great blessing that is to receive. And so Solomon kind of seems to be doing all good, sticking, uh, fulfilling that prophecy, I guess. Not that it was on him to fulfill it, but he builds the temple as God commanded and kind of religious life uh, now centers around the temple in Jerusalem rather than the tabernacle in Shiloh. And it is um, a really prosperous time. But then Solomon's son, is not accepted uh, by everyone. Much of Israel goes, no, we don't want him to be our king. We're going to pick our own king. Um, and the kingdom splits. You have the kingdom of Judah in the south. That's the little gold crown there. And um, it's still gold because it is still Davidic kings. It's still the son of Solomon, who's the son of David. But the red crown in the north represents the kingdom of Israel. And this is where things get confusing because it's the same name, Israel, but it's not representing the whole Uh, the whole people anymore. And their kings, more often than not, change hands by blood spilled. Um, It's fascinating reading in um, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, how while Judah um, advances by um, a king having a son, and they become a king and they have a son, they have a king who has a son, and uh, the kingdom of Israel advances by this guy wanted to be king, 
um, and took out the other one. And then this guy wanted to be king and took out the other one. And then this one wanted to be king and took out the other one. It's this really stark contrast. Um, not only that, um, the kingdom of Israel doesn't have the temple in it. And so they've built their own kind of high places. They do want to still honour God. But um, God had set the Davidic king over them. God had set the temple as sort of the centre of their uh, relationship with them, of their religious life, and Israel had moved away from that. Um, and so they kind of wanted to still continue moving in that, but didn't want to follow God's way of doing it. Now, uh, so over the course of uh, centuries, we kind of see both these kingdoms kind of in decline. The kings move away from God. The kingdoms themselves move away from God. The laws are forgotten. The feasts are no longer kept. It's just sort of... Um, it's, and this happens over centuries, but that's all covered in the books of uh, mainly two kings and uh, one or two chronicles. And then we have this little squiggle going up there. Um, this is a squiggle going up for uh, Israel, a squiggle going the other way for Judah, and these represent the exiles. The empire of Assyria comes in, conquers Israel, captures their king, and uh, they just don't have a king anymore. Um, it takes a bunch of their people away, and they... Um, in the timeline here, I have them kind of vanish. Their identity in God is lost to history. They can never kind of come back from this. The ten northern tribes out of twelve tribes of Judah... Uh, 12, 12 tribes of Israel are essentially gone um, to history. But, um, and then a century later, the uh, Babylonian Empire comes and conquers the kingdom of Judah and takes them away as well. And so that's why it pivots down. They're in exile. They're away from their land. And as they do, they destroy the walls of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And um, Judah is in a really bad way. This gets us to the end of Two Kings. Um, one and Two Chronicles covers the same period, um, does a lot of recapping, fills in some gaps. Um, so it's worth reading that as well. And it adds right onto the end there that um, Persia conquers Babylon and Judah is permitted to return home and build. And so that's the uh, hammer and, and ruler you see there they're allowed to uh, come home and restore Jerusalem. Uh, they rebuild the temple, they re rebuild the wall, and that is covered in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther is in this time period as well. It's important to understand that they are still under Persian rule. They still don't have a king, certainly not a Davidic king. They are under the Persian king. And this is the end of the Old Testament in terms of it, the, the breadth of its history. We have the final line there going to the cross represents a period we call 400 years of silence where no more scripture was written um, and the people just the people in the kingdom of Judah just kind of waited. Not, no longer the kingdom of Judah, sorry. The province of Judah. The Persian province of Judah are now waiting for a king to rise up and save them. Now, the Old Testament history has kind of ended here. Um, we do have other historical records, 
so it's not just the Persian Empire that has them. Um, Alexander the Great comes in and takes over, and so now they're under Greece. Um, they take on a lot of Greek language, and it becomes the province of Judea instead of the province of Judah. And that's why in the New Testament we see Judea rather than Judah. Um, <clears throat> Greece doesn't have a hold of them for too long. Um, in comes Egypt, then in comes Syria, then in comes Rome, and that takes us all the way to the New Testament. All this time, the kingdom of the province of Judea um, waiting for a king to rise up. And they're not waiting without reason, because um, let's go one more slide forward to our last slide. We've only gotten halfway through the Old Testament. It's kind of like the first half of the Old Testament covers the breadth of the history in a narrative way. And then we have the last half. We have the wisdom and poetry books. That's Job, um, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, which were mostly written during the Golden Age. And it's kind of reflected in how they're written and, and um, a lot of the language there. And then all of the prophets that you've heard of, um, not all the ones you've heard of, but all the ones that have whole books after that, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, um, little ones like Habakkuk, Haggai, Micah, they all happen in that period after the kingdoms have split, um, either before the exile, during the exile, or after the exile. And so it's important to understand this big picture because not only um, the, the first half we were kind of managed because it's all kind of in order, the second half, when it's kind of coming into this literature and going, what is the context? Where is it coming from? What, what, are the, what are they writing to and from? And so most of the prophets start with um, something like the prophet Isaiah under King X of Judah and King Y of um, Israel. So they kind of situate themselves. Are they in the divided kingdoms? Are they in exile? Or are they a people restored or trying to be restored? Um, so... I find that really helpful digging into those. Um, we'll give you some examples of what we hear from the prophets because they're well worth getting into. Um, Isaiah famously, vividly prophesizes Jesus and his suffering. And that's where we get the, the suffering servant from. Jeremiah prophesied a new Davidic king. Um, as well as he prophesied Babylon conquering Judah before Babylon conquered Judah, and then uh, he, and he conquered the Davidic king coming. Um, Daniel famously hung out with some lions during Judah's exile in Babylon. And so for me, I found it really helpful as I kind of filled in this big picture to kind of place these things where like, they'd all kind of been a mishmash distributed across the whole Old Testament, and now I can place... like. Yeah, as an example, when I'm reading to my oldest son's name is Daniel, he loves the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And I have a far better sense of when that is happening, why that is happening under a different king, why that is happening outside of the kingdom of Judah, uh, or even the kingdom of Israel, so to speak. Um, and it brings so much more clarity there. I think also understanding the division of the kingdoms is really helpful because sometimes you jump into the Old Testament and you see... Uh, under King Israel, uh, the king of Israel, and um, all sorts of stuff is going wrong, and it looks really bad for Israel. And to not understand, I mean, a lot of the history it looks really bad for Israel, but not understand the distinction between um, a Israel that had moved away from God's covenant, that had moved away from God's kings, that had moved away from God's temple, versus Israel in the golden age under Saul, David, or Solomon. 
um, or Israel, the family in Egypt, or Israel, the wandering people in the wilderness. So to be able to situate yourself uh, on this timeline, I find is really helpful for understanding um, when I'm jumping in. And when I say jumping in, I'm not like skipping around the Bible at random, but it is great to have resources like uh, these that have, um, you can have a really big Bible or a really little Bible that still includes cross-references in them so that you're reading in the New Testament um, some prophecy and it points to somewhere, it says, check this out in Isaiah or check this, this out in Psalms. And you can go there and so even though you're just going to the verse, you can situate yourself in the history and go, who is this talking to? Is it talking to a people exiled? Is it talking to a people in decline? Is it talking to a people waiting? So I find this a really helpful tool. Um, and now we've gotten to the New Testament. The fulfillment, uh, fulfillment here comes in spades. The cross represents Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Um, like the picture of the pyramid is doing a lot of heavy lifting here because there's a lot going on there. But um, in Jesus, we see that he is the king long awaited. Not just a king, but born in Bethlehem, as prophesied in, I believe, Micah. The Lion of Judah in the line of David, his ancestor. The Word made flesh, a king both man and God. People didn't want God to be their king, they wanted a man to be their king. Now they can have both. Uh, he perfectly lived out outside of the covenant with Moses um, and died like the Lamb of Passover so that we would live. To adopt people everywhere into Abraham's family, making his children uncountable like the stars and making him a blessing to all nations as promised. In his defeat of death, he bruised the head of the serpent as promised in the garden so that we can walk with our God again, sinless, without the need of a temple, without the fear of God's righteous wrath. He proved the long-awaited resurrection prophesied by Isaiah and Daniel and he lives eternally and he will return and bring us into eternity with him. So this, I think, is also why, um, not why the big picture necessarily is important, but why being able to dig into the whole Old Testament is really important. How much does Jesus fulfill here? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. We can see that, right? And this is just sort of like a cursory overview, a sort of um, big picture survey like this doesn't replace digging into the word. I've plucked out things like the promise against the serpent, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, but there's so much in between that enriches it even more. Um, I've barely touched on the prophets, uh, many of whom talk about... Um, Sometimes they have commands from God for right now. Sometimes they have commands for repentance. Um, the temple was rebuilt because a prophet, I think Haggai, said, hey, God said we should rebuild it now. Um, but also pointing forward to, like, we're waiting for a king and it will be a king of David. It will be a king who comes from Bethlehem and his throne will be eternal. Hang in there. Walk with God. So doesn't the big picture make... Jesus is so much sweeter. More than 
just an amazing sacrifice and resurrection in the middle of an otherwise mysterious history. Here's the fulfillment of so much. And so if the scope of the Bible is daunting to you, I know this has sort of been very um, broad and maybe practical rather than heart stuff, but if the, I want to encourage you, if the scope of the Bible is daunting to you, to try and understand, make a big picture of your own maybe, um, take a picture of this one or I can send you my own, you can fill it in, you can take stuff out of it or enrich it, whatever's going to make it easier for you to remember it and follow it and place yourself in it. But I just think this is a useful tool for being able to delight in God's word. Because when we understand where everything is in relation to everything else, it's far less daunting. It isn't a million arbitrary oppressions. It isn't a random movements of kingdoms all over the place. You know, it isn't um, countless kings. Maybe it feels like countless kings, but there's a distinction between the kings of the golden age in a united kingdom, a united monarchy, and uh, their decline after that. And so there's so much, it's so much easier to follow um, when we have an idea of the big picture. If there are parts of that timeline that seem especially mysterious to you, um, or that seem new to you from what you've heard today, um, I hope you don't take away from it, well, now I know. I hope what you'd rather take away from today is, oh, that's something I should read now. That's something I should dig into. That's what I meant when I was telling Cheryl and Rob, I hope we have a, a bigger plate on which to bring in the buffet, you know, um, so that we can understand God's word all the better, delight in it all the more, feast on it, grow in it, and bless each other in it. Uh, to close, I want to look a little bit more. We've touched on how Jesus uh, fulfills a lot of that big picture stuff, um, fulfills a lot of the Old Testament. But I also want to bring us back to uh, Jesus' many names and titles that we had up there. I believe we had the lion and the lamb. I really love that one. We sing praises to the lion and the lamb. And such a vivid contrast, right? Because the lion is a symbol of royalty and strength, and a lamb is a symbol of purity and uh, meekness. And to be able to have both of those together is a wonderful thing. Let's dig a little bit into where we actually see that in Scripture and how that enriches, enriches things for us even more. The actual lion and the lamb coming together we see in Revelation 5. Um, John, who is having his vision in Revelation, uh, <clears throat> sees, uh, hears an elder say, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And I was like, oh, here we go. We're going to see the lion. Let's see him. And who does he see? A lamb standing as though slaughtered. It's a powerful image of how Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. And those who are present sing, Worthy are you, for you are slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then the angels join in to sing, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is the lion of Judah prophesied back in Genesis. This is the fulfillment of all God's might for his people and his salvation for his people. This is the lamb of Passover. And the innocent little lambs can't actually, by their blood, pay for the price of the people in Egypt, of the Israelites. 
No, instead, it just points forwards to Jesus' death and resurrection, which does save us. The big picture history helps us answer questions like, um, why does Jesus need to die for our sins? Why can't he just be merciful? When you look back in this history and see the consequences of sin, the weight of it all, and how people were able to engage with that and sort of pay for it, and then for Jesus to take that all upon himself in this powerful action that actually justifies us before God. What a wonderful thing. We can't do that without digging into the whole Old Testament. Jesus is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb of the Passover. Let's delight ourselves in all of Scripture and marvel at how it is fulfilled in Jesus. It's an amazing, true story penned by the author of creation. Let's know it well, encourage each other in it, share it with all the earth. That's the earth picture there. As we await eternity with our King Jesus. Let's pray.